Welcome to Crossbridge, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Jordan. I am the online pastor here at C3 and also a teaching pastor and just honored to be able to speak for you today. And so if you are visiting, I'd love to get to know you in the lobby in the back. And if you're watching with us online, let me know in the chat because I would love to connect with you after service. But uh, this week, I had the opportunity to research a little bit about farming uh, for the message today. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm not a farmer. Um, and I actually, my only, my wonderful wife is so mean to me. <laughs> is that shocker? Uh, anyway, uh, uh, for the message this week, I had the opportunity to, uh, you know, learn a little bit about farming. And actually, uh, I have had a little bit of experience, just a little bit. Back in first grade, um, back in first grade, our first grade class raised and hatched chickens, Okay. And I was honored to be able to uh, bring one of them home. Now, my parents did not know that I was bringing one of them home. But for some reason, my first grade teacher trusted me when I said my parents had given me permission. And so for two weeks, they let me keep Hopper. Uh, we called him Hopper because he continued to hop out of his crate, out of his box. He was a jumper. Um, and then after two weeks, they made me take him to a farm. Um, the farmer let us know he was probably going to die, which was very sad for me. I was distraught. It was the first time in my life something was ripped away from me, and I've been wrestling with abandonment ever since. But that was my only experience with farming, okay? This tool right here, however, is my favorite tool, okay? Uh, and not just like the pitchfork in and of itself, but this exact pitchfork, okay? This is Brad's pitchfork. He has had it and used it for over 82 years. And we have a landscaping business um, on the side called uh, Brad Sleeps, Jordan Works, and that's the title. And so what we do is, you're at, you're, some of you are like, why are you giving Brad such a hard time? Okay, well, if you were at service last week, yeah, all of you laughing now, I know. Every single one of you laughed last week when, Jor uh, when Brad called Jordan, myself, a short, scrawny runt. And every single one of you laughed in the crowd. And those that have no idea what I'm talking about, I'd love to see you next week and be more consistent at church. So anyway, Brad, 82 years with this pitchfork. In our landscaping business, I love this because we have the opportunity where I'm mulching and I load up the wheelbarrow and I'll bring it to where we're going and I'll dump it and Brad's on his knees just making everything look pretty because that's our business and how things go. Um, but is this pitchfork. And he's tried to upgrade a couple times over the decades, but we both always come back to this exact one. And I texted him yesterday and I asked him if he would bring the pitchfork. And he asked me this morning, is that for a sermon illustration or is that for, um, is that just for landscaping? And uh, it's for both, if you didn't know. Anyway, while I was researching farming, why I have this fun tool with me is the character we're going to be talking about today uh, had the career of, you know, being a farmer and threshing wheat. And that was what they did in Israel. And so if you've never heard of threshing wheat, it looks a little bit different now with the technology we have, unless you live in certain parts of the world. And so I just wanted to give you a brief history of kind of, you know, what threshing wheat looks like. Because in Bible times, um, it's really fascinating what would happen. 
what they would do is they would go out to the fields and they would um, use either their sharp stones or their metals to cut down the barley of wheat. And then they would gather it together and they would bring it to kind of the center of the town, right? The center of the town where there was a threshing board set up, different kind of um, pallets of, of wood set up on the ground. They would throw their wheat into the middle there. And then they would often have a donkey or a child, some of you are like, not a difference, that would go and walk around in a circle, stomping on the barley of wheat to separate um, the pieces that were necessary and to pull out the nutrients. And it's, once again, so cool, just the connection, that often there needs to be pressure applied to something in order to see the fruitfulness of its labor. Um, not just with different fruits, with wines, with food, with diamonds, with different stones and rocks, but then also with humans, with God. There's pressure involved to see the fruits of its labor, but that's another message for another day. Um, but that's what would happen in the process. And so a donkey or children, they would walk in a circle and they would press down. And then after the grain had been pressed out and the wheat had been separated, then they would have individuals with uh, tools that looked similar to a pitchfork, but in their culture, it was mostly just a staff, a wooden staff with some stones tied around or some metal shards tied around at the top. And they would literally throw the wheat up in the air like this, and then the wind would catch it and separate the grain and the wheat from what was not necessary for the process of uh, creating bread and all of that. And so then they would gather into little bowls and they would shake out all of the stones and the dirt. And it's really cool, really uh, incredible concept of, of what they would do in their culture. Well, for today's story in uh, Judges chapter 6, for week number 5 of our series, Right in the Eye, a series where we have been walking through uh, different stories found in the book of Judges. It's the seventh book of the Bible, and it is a book that separates the, um, the uh, exodus from Egypt, where the Israelites left slavery, and then it's in between that and the time of the kings for Israel. So in between those two situations, you have the time of the judges, where God sends different judges to rule over Israel, to judge over Israel, to help them navigate their different sins, their different lifestyles, their different decisions, because they desperately wanted a king. And every chapter in the first half of the book of Judges starts off with, and then the evil, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so God did A, God did B, God punished, God sent them over to their enemies, God gave them over to the desires of their heart. And so we've walked through Samson as last week, we've walked through uh, Deborah, we've walked, uh, today we're going to be walking through Gideon, and we've walked through different chapters and different stories all throughout the uh, 21 chapter book of Judges. And today, like I said, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. We're going to cover three chapters today. The life of Gideon is one that is very long, um, but very powerful. And here's kind of the main idea. I just want to give it to you right off the bat. Um, the main idea for today's message is that our greatest journey begins with a single step of obedience. Our greatest journey begins with a single step of obedience. A lot of times we see um, people of fame or kingdoms or empires or different leaders or different um, philosophers or uh, individuals who seem like they've done so many incredible things in their life. And we see the end result of their success without taking into account the pressure, the crushing, the threshing, 
of their labor, what was required to extract the nutrients from their lives. But every single person who has experienced that type of success, they'll tell you that the grind, the hard work, the labor, the suffering, the pain that they went through to get there started with one simple step of obedience. That's why our mission statement here at Crossbridge is transforming lives by helping people take next steps with God. Everyone has a next step, a small, simple step that they can take towards their journey. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The title of the message today is Leave the Wine Press. Leave the Wine Press. And so what we're going to be doing, just kind of give you the roadmap of the message today, we're going to walk through chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Judges. Um, I'm going to recap a lot of the story, but then we're going to throw up about 12 verses throughout to just kind of help us on our way. We don't, don't have time to cover the entire story. It's over 70 verses today, um, but I would encourage you to go home and read it on your own, Judges 6, 7, and 8. And uh, then at the end of the message, we'll have four takeaways. We'll pray and then get out of here. So I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. But leave the wine press. Turn with me to Judges chapter 6. Of your Bibles, it is the seventh book in the Bible, the Old Testament, um, right after the book of Joshua. So once again, chapter 6 starts with verse 1 that says, Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so what happened was God sent them over and handed them over to their enemies of the time, this time being the Midianites, another oppressor. Hands them over to the desires of their heart because they were sinning, they were lustful, they were idolatrous, they were, uh, they were worshiping the God of Baal in this specific story and much throughout the Old Testament. And so God hands them over to Midian and the Midianites. And after seven years of oppression from the Midianites, what happens is they're out in their farms, they're out in their houses, out in their labor, they're working, and then the Midianites start to oppress them even harder and even farther by going down the hills and storming their land, burning down all of their wheat, all of their barley, all of their grain, all of their fields, killing all of their sheep, all of their goats, all of their donkeys, their rams, killing them all, burning down the houses. And so the Israelites are fearful and they flee to the caves, to the mountains, to the taverns, um, to holes in the ground to try to escape oppression. And it wasn't until they are fully impoverished, the text says, that they cry out, to the Lord. So you've got this experience where it's time and time again, and then this is what happens in verse number eight, chapter six. God sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. I have that verse highlighted because that phrase, but you have not listened to me is so powerful. And so God then sends the angel of the Lord to the leader that he is going to call to walk with the Israelites this time. And whenever the Old Testament uses that phrase, angel of the Lord, a lot of theologians, a lot of educators, including myself, believe that that's just Jesus in the Old Testament. Believe that God is sending Jesus down um, in the Old Testament to be the angel of the Lord for him. And so he goes down and he approaches Gideon. He approaches Gideon. And what's unique about this situation 
is he approaches Gideon, and the text says he is threshing wheat in a wine press. He finds him threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, why this is so fascinating is because, again, I don't know much about farming, but the research I did, one does not thresh wheat in a wine press. In fact, in biblical times, wine presses were found underground. They were either soft holes in the ground, or they could be as big as caves down underneath. And so what was happening was, because the Midianites were traveling down into the fields and destroying everything, Gideon went and he gathered his wheat, he carried it with him, and then went underground to the wine press to thresh it out, just like I showed you, a very tedious, um, a very tedious project. And the text tells us so that, because he was fearful of the Midianites, so that they couldn't steal it or harm him or take away the wheat that he was able to gather. And so the angel of the Lord finds Gideon threshing wheat underground in a wine press. And this is what he says. Uh, verse 13, he said, or sorry, right before verse 13, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And verse 13 on the screen says this, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord was with us, why has all this happened? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And then if you're here with us or if you're watching online, I want you to read this next verse with me. Verse 14 out loud. The Lord turned to him and said, Nobody's reading out loud. <laughs> go in the strength, there we go, you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? If you're taking notes, write down that phrase. Am I not sending you? Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. Gideon continues to make excuses. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all of the Midianites, leaving none alive. We're gonna try this again. We're gonna read two verses this time together. Are you ready? I believe. Verse 17 and 18, read out loud with me. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go when, yeah, when I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. See, I got so excited like there. I'm like, oh, they kept reading to verse 18. So proud of you. Um, but hey, so we have this experience. And the reason I wanted us to read those verses out loud together is because so many of us have probably said those exact words at some point in our life to God. Where God sent the angel of the Lord to Gideon and says, hey, I'm calling you. Rise up, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, hold up. Wait a minute. <laughs> Pardon me. Pardon me, but where's the God been that our ancestors have told us about? For decades and decades and decades, where's the God been of the signs and the wonders that we saw in Egypt? The God of Moses, the God of Abraham, and he asks some really real questions that all of us probably ask multiple times throughout our lives. That's why I love the new Elevation worship song. Um, if you haven't heard it, it's called Same God. Just released this last couple months. Same God of Moses is the same God of today. 
And yet Gideon asks a really humble, honest question, where is that God now? And God says, am I not here now? Am I not sending you? And Gideon says, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Four words that we probably have asked multiple times. In fact, I asked that exact same thing when I was determining whether or not I should propose to Marissa. I said, God, give me a sign. If this specific song shows up on my shuffle, I'm supposed to marry her. It was not that song, so I did double or nothing. (laughs) And how many of us do that exact same thing? We're like, God, here we go, the dice. If they land on odds, it's even. Okay, double or nothing. Like, we do that exact same thing, and we see Gideon, and yet God says, okay, you know what? I'll do a sign. And so uh, what ends up happening in this specific sign is he says, hey, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare an offering for you, God. If you are God, if you're the real God, you won't leave until I get back. So he ends up doing this. He ends up going and preparing the offering. Um, The Lord stays there. He ends up consuming the offering. And then Gideon says, wow, I've seen the Lord. I'm going to die because of it. And the Lord says, hey, don't be afraid, okay? But here's what I want you to do. I want you to now go to your father's household, and I want you to tear down Baal, okay? The tower of Baal, the tower that they are starting to worship. And so Gideon ends up going and doing that. Verse 24, so um, after he tears it down, uh, so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Oprah of the Abyssinian. A.B. is right. We're going with that. A.B. is right. <laughs> okay. And so this is the experience where God's like, hey, I've called you. Okay. I've shown you who I am, but now you're going to take your faith to the next level. And so God approaches Gideon another time with the spirit of the Lord. And he says, hey, now it's time to go to battle. Gather the soldiers, gather the troops, and we are going to go to battle. And we are going to fight back against the Midianites. And so he has this, um, you, know, you know, plan of where he is going to call together 32,000 soldiers. And it's a really powerful plan, but Gideon, once again, is fearful of what may happen. So he asks God to prove to him with his army that they can, in fact, beat the Midianites. And so here we go, verse 36 of chapter 6. Gideon said to God, you know, show me another sign. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. But Gideon still wasn't convinced. So verse 39, then Gideon said to God, God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew around it. So verse 40, that night God did so. Only the the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. And that's how we end chapter 6. And so chapter 7, Gideon goes and he recruits his army as 32,000 soldiers. But this is what happens. Verse 2 for chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot drive and deliver Midian into their hands. And this is why God cannot do that. Because Israel would boast against me. And they would say, my own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Verse 4, but the Lord 
said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Verse seven, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 that lapped the water, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon, already fearful for his life, finally has a solid army of 32,000 soldiers and that quickly gets diminished to 300. And so they end up gathering their soldiers, going up on the mountain and looking down on the Midianite camp. And God gives Gideon a choice. He says, hey, after all of these tests, after all of these signs, you can trust me now. But if you're still fearful, go with your servant down to the Midianite camp and I will give you yet another sign. So Gideon, living in his fear once again, he takes option number B, and he goes down to the camp. Here's uh, some of the soldiers talking about some visions that they had, and uh, his servant interprets the vision as, hey, God has, in fact, delivered this army to you. So Gideon goes back to the soldiers, goes back to the soldiers, and he prepares them for battle. Verse 17, James, we're gonna skip the one before that. Verse 17, watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And here's what's so fascinating about the life of Gideon is every time you think he's finally got it figured out, okay, he just gives you another human flaw, okay? It starts with fear, it starts with anxiety, it starts with test, test, test. And then he's finally confident and he says, hey, now when we go and charge down to the Midianites, we're gonna shout not just for the Lord, but for Gideon also. And if you remember, God wanted to be very specific in this whole situation and said, hey, I'm only giving you 300 soldiers so that Israel knows it is not by human hands that defeated the Midianites. And yet Gideon Still snuck his own name in there. Still snuck his own name in there. But just as God had proclaimed, the uh, Gideon and the 300 army soldier rushed down the hills. They're blowing their trumpets. They're clashing their jar clays, clashing their, uh, their skull, their animal skulls together. The Midianites are so terrified for their life, God actually has them killing each other, okay? The Gideon and his 300 army in this specific battle didn't have to lay a hand on a soldier because they are defeating themselves and then they flee. And that is how chapter seven ends. And so going into chapter eight, we see verse four. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out and I'm still pursuing Ziba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. So they hadn't been captured yet. However, the officials of Succoth saw their armies they knew their oppressors, the Midianites, were still alive. And they said, hey, until you bring us the heads of these soldiers, of, of the two leaders, we're not going to help you at all. And so Gideon gets pretty upset. And he says, hey, because you did that, <laughs> because you said that, 
when I get back from this battle, I'm about to go whoop, okay? I'm going to make sure I throw you to the briars and kill you all as well. I'm like, okay, very, very nice. Once again, Gideon has the army, and then once again, he just takes a step back. It's like two steps forward, three steps back for Gideon. And so he goes to another community. They turn down his request as well, and so he gives them the same thing. Hey, I'm going to tear down your towers. I'm going to humiliate you in front of the communities because you won't feed me and my troops. Verse 10, now Ziba and Zalmana were in Kekor with a force of about 15,000 men. All that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen in this entire battle with, an enemy, with their enemy of only 300 soldiers. Verse 11, Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jagaba and attacked the unsuspecting army. Ziba and Zalmana, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them routing their entire army. And so Gideon captures the two leaders, and he has his son with him. And he asks these two leaders, he says, hey, have you killed any men who look like us? The two leaders says, yes, in fact, we have. We killed about 70 of them. And Gideon becomes distraught, and he says, hey, those were actually my brothers. My mother um, birthed them. If you had spared their lives, I would have spared yours. And then he turns to his son, and he says, hey, cut off their heads. Kill them. Kill him now. And his son, being probably about 12, is what a lot of scholars say, very young, was saying, eh, yeah, that, not my cup of tea, Dad. And so then the two officials say, hey, stop being such a coward. Kill us yourself. And so Gideon ends up killing them, brings their heads to the two communities that wouldn't help him before, and ends up punishing them as well. All of that to say, then we get to verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Once again, that was how they interpreted all of that. Verse 23, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And once again, you think, okay, he's got it figured out. But then the next verse, and he said, however, I do have one request. Each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'd be glad to give you them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into a fad, which he placed in Oprah, his town. And then all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. And so Gideon then ends up um, ruling for over 40 years. There's 40 years of peace. Then he ends up dying. And this is where we end today, our passage. Verse 32, Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash and Oprah of the Abizirites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Barith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of the Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, 
in spite of all the good things he had done for them. They continued to do what was right in their own eye. Continued to do what was right in their own eye. What a crazy story. Again, if you're not reading the Bible, you are missing out. It is filled with stories like this, but often when we read and we reflect on passages like this in the life of Gideon, again, it was like one step forward, two steps back, and then two steps forward, three steps back. It's once again, you're like, God, how could you use someone like Gideon? And we're exactly like Gideon. Time and time again. And God uses the disqualified or the unqualified all throughout scripture to do his bidding. Because humans are sinful. Humans are sinful. And it is so important for us to step away from our idolatry and our sin and give God the glory. And so here's four takeaways I want to wrap up with today as, I, as we reflect on the story. Takeaway number one is this. God does not call us away from our fears, but he guides us through them. So many of us who live in anxiety or live in fears or live in stressful situations, we think, God, just give me another way. It's actually the exact words that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, is there another way? It's what Moses used in the Old Testament, Exodus, when he's at the burning bush. He says, God, send somebody else. Do something else. It's the same thing that Gideon, he's like, test after test after test. There's got to be another way in our fear. It, it's time and time again. And each and every one of those situations, God says, hey, I'm not going to provide the other way, but I'm going to guide and walk with you through it. So many of us think that the opposite of fear, the opposite side of fear is where God is, okay? But to get there, we have to walk through that. We have to walk through that which we're afraid. Trusting that God is in control. And that perfect love is going to cast out that fear. We're going to walk through that fear. And we're going to experience it together. Okay, just like we talked about at the very beginning, Every significant journey that you're going to go on in your life starts with a small step of obedience. So you know what, God? I'm going to walk through. I'm going to step out of the boat just like Peter to walk on water. Okay? Takeaway number two. Gideon is not the hero. God is. Gideon is not the hero of this story. God is. And that is something that we have to understand with every story throughout Scripture. Moses is not the hero. God is. Abraham is not the hero. God is. Peter is not the hero. God is. Paul is not the hero. God is. And it's the, it's the same message that God had been giving the Israelites all throughout Scripture, all throughout the 66-book letter that we have and that we're able to call the Bible, is time and time again, leaders begin to prostitute themselves as this idol to be worshipped. And time and time again, humanity has fallen for that idolatry. Happens in Gideon. It says, hey, when we go down and we rush down the mountain, we're going to cheer out that this is for the Lord and for Gideon. And the whole way that God set this up the whole reason God set it up the way he did was so that it was just for the Lord. An army of 300 took over an army of 100,000. And still humanity began to worship that which was their own, that which was sin. God is, or God is the hero. Gideon is not. Takeaway number three from this story. Left unchecked, idolatry will consume us. Left unchecked, idolatry 
will consume us. And this is what we see again. We see stories that are so like blatantly filled with sin and we're able to expose the sin because it's just right there in the text because the authors of the scripture literally tell us they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But we do that time and time again. Some of us idolize our kids' lives and worship our kids' successes and our kids' lives in sports and school and education and their careers and their relationships. Some of us, like Brad talked about last week, idolize sex. Some of us idolize food. Some of us idolize wealth. Some of us idolize the newest, the nicest, the biggest, the best. Some of us idolize our marriages. Some of us idolize our singleness. Some of us idolize our struggles. Where it's so much easier to just be comfortable in that which we're struggling rather than stepping out of the boat and fighting. Which leads me to takeaway number four and our last one today and the most important one. Eventually, we have to leave the wine press. God found Gideon cowering in a hole in the ground and that is where he called him. And he gave Gideon a choice. He said, am I not sending you? Gideon says, hey, where have you been? God says, I'm calling you right now. But you have a choice to leave the wine press or in New Testament terms, to step out of the boat as Peter did and to walk with me on this journey. Here's the reality, friends. Too many of us are living in fear and it's stopping what God has created us for. Every incredible journey starts with a simple step of obedience to say, you know what, God? I'm gonna get out of the boat. And when I taught through that passage over the summer, last summer, um, it, it was just so cool. What God placed in my heart is that for me personally, I'd rather get up out of the boat like Peter did, walk on water a little bit and then fall than regret not getting out of the boat at all. Because here's the reality. Regret lasts longer than adversity. The pressure, the crushing, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, the loneliness, the sacrifice, that is temporary. Regret will last a lifetime. So leave the wine press. Leave the wine press. For some of you, that's going to be extremely difficult. Some of us have gotten so comfortable with that, that which we own. Some of us have become so comfortable with what is easy, with what is simple. We don't want to give generously to God. We don't want to sacrifice our time. We don't want to tell our kids no. We don't want to set the standard of being consistent churchgoers. We don't want to be set the standard of being consistent prayers. We don't want to set the standard of being consistent. You fill in the blank because that requires leaving the wine press. But here's what's so cool about this is that God will use us even in our doubts. There's hope, there's redemption, there's reconciliation, there's joy. But it starts with one step of obedience to say, you know what, God, open hands, use me. And just like Gideon, there's gonna be days where you're like, hey, three steps back today. I don't wanna get out of bed and face the day. And there's going to be days where you're like Gideon and you're running down the hill and you're an army and your soldiers are clashing jaws and you're threshing wheat out in public because the fear is gone, okay? But we're transforming lives by helping people take next steps with God. 
That's why we're a church. That's why we are here doing what we do. And you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. But don't stay in the boat because of the fear of failure. Get out of the boat. Get out of the wine press and let God use you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for Gideon. Thank you that you pointed out so blatantly his shortcomings, God, because it reminds me so blatantly of my shortcomings, God. The times where I did stay in the boat, the times where I stayed in the house, the times where I stayed back and you were calling me forward with a simple step of obedience, God, to step through that which I was afraid to experience you guiding me all along. I pray, God, for every single individual here today who is listening to this message. And maybe, God, you placed on their heart an itch. You placed on their heart a next step. You placed on their heart something that has been consuming them, an idol that they have been worshiping, God, that you are calling them to lay down for you. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that right now they would take all of those itches as the Holy Spirit nudging them to give it up. In your name I pray. Amen.